Purple Heart. Nice left. Those weapons of mass destruction got to be somewhere. By 2014, the war in Afghanistan will be over. Nice left. Well, I, you know, general is not necessarily a general. Uh, no, nope. no weapons over there. He may be a communist. Nice left. They're throwing rocks viciously and violently. You saw that three days ago. Really hurting the military. We're not going to put up with that. They want to throw rocks at our military. Our military fights back. We're going to consider, and I told them, consider it a rifle. When they throw rocks like they did at the Mexico military police, I say, consider it a rifle. Welcome to Eyes Left. That was just your commander-in-chief telling you to commit a war crime. Uh, we're here to talk about this whole issue of the migrant caravan today. This is your host, Mike Preisner, and I'm joined by your host, Spencer Rippone. Hey, Spencer. Hey, Mike. How's it going? Uh, all right. This stuff's pretty crazy, don't you think? It is pretty crazy. Uh, as Mike, as you just said, uh, commander-in-chief, President Donald Trump, calling on active duty soldiers to actively commit war crimes uh, in the pursuit of what's called Operation Faithful Patriot, um, <laughs> designed to uh, intercept a supposed threat engendered by the uh, migrant caravan uh, currently traveling from uh, various uh, Central American countries that are responding to U.S. Uh, imperialism. Just that name alone, Faithful Patriot. I mean, that's just like a really bizarre sanctification of this really racist mission. I mean, you might as well just call it Operation Christian Nationalist. It's really saying the same thing. Yeah, no, I, I mean, it's really interesting to me how increasingly all these different uh, figures in the Trump administration are letting the mask just slip off in terms of their rhetoric and their policy agenda. I mean, it's you can't get more on the nose than something like uh, faithful patriot. It really is reminiscent of some of the slogans you saw uh, with the American Nazi movement uh, in the 30s uh, and 40s. Yeah, unbelievable. So we're going to today we're going to get into all of the issues we have to know about what's going on now, what your rights are. A lot of people have been writing uh, to me and in you as well, Spencer, asking for advice mm -hmm. or people in the military who are really outraged by this um, and want to know what to do. And so we're going to get into a little bit of history, a little bit of what's going on currently, a little bit of solutions and, and of course, uh, options and advice for you if you're in the military and kind of dealing with this situation, whether you're one of the soldiers that is being sent to the front lines of this board, so-called border war, or if you're just, uh, you know, now in this just in the army, but know that you you play a role in the the larger scheme of things. So um, yeah, Spencer. I mean, other than so, we know that now that this uh, Trump promising troops on the border initially in the few hundreds has now grown to like fifteen thousand, possibly uh, going to the border in three different states: Arizona, Texas, and California. So they've released the list of units that so far are deploying to the border, uh, and that includes units from Fort Bragg, North Carolina; Fort Carson, Colorado. Peterson Air Force, Colorado, Scott Air Force Base in Illinois, Fort Meade, Maryland, uh, Fort Stewart and Army and Hunter Army Airfield in Georgia, um, Joint Base San Antonio, Fort Sam Houston in Texas, Joint Base Lewis McCord in Washington, Joint Base Charleston, South Carolina, Fort Bliss 
Texas, Fort Hood, Texas, a lot of military police brigades going from Fort Hood. In fact, an entire military police brigade from Fort Hood, Fort Knox, Kentucky, Fort Campbell, Kentucky, Fort Riley, Kansas, um, really a large number of units. Initially, it was just going to be National Guard units, right? And then Trump actually came out and said, no, I'm sending the real army. I'm sending the real active duty army. Uh, and so we're seeing countless active duty army and Air Force deployments. Yeah, so... You know, the number kept rising. First, it was a thousand. Uh, the Pentagon officially announced uh, deployment of 5,200 uh, soldiers. And then Trump himself has threatened to send as many as 15,000 uh, U.S. troops to the uh, U.S.-Mexico border. I mean, and this is all to, you know, confront uh, this caravan of desperate, impoverished and nonviolent migrants from Central America. What's just astonishing is, you know, if... This number is met uh, what Trump is threatening uh, of this completely imagined threat. I mean, that will surpass the amount of troops involved in the initial invasion of Afghanistan by regular army forces in March of 02. Yeah, unbelievable, especially considering that of this uh, caravan of about 7000 refugees, like mm -hmm. 3000 are our children, our little children. Right. right. Um, so, you know, we want to recap the main aspects of this situation and why it's very alarming. Of course, I was, we've always reiterated uh, the uh, foreign policy and military agenda of Trump and his administration is little different from Obama and Bush uh, before him. But this instance right here is particularly uh, troubling. I mean, just looking at the way Trump and uh, his administration are framing it, uh, some of the the rhetoric they're tapping into, you know, Trump and the GOP are peddling a lot of conspiratorial claims uh, in order to dehumanize refugees. One of them being that uh, a thousand ISIS fighters are hiding in the caravan. <laughs> Makes a lot of sense. Right. Uh, the, the, the typical, um, you know, claim that it's a stunt, a political stunt created and funded by the Democrats, which usually ties in with the George Soros conspiracy, which is just a way around of them uh, peddling anti-Semitic conspiracy theories. And, of course, I myself am from western Pennsylvania, 50 miles northwest of Pittsburgh. And need we say any more that conspiracy theories like this are why the Pittsburgh massacre uh, happened uh, at the Tree of Life synagogue um, not too long ago. And so this normalizing of uh, conspiratorial ideas with regards to... Uh, Various oppressed groups and uh, migrants is quite troubling, and it's all serving a larger goal. I recently, uh, along with Rory Fanning, another war resistor, we published an open letter to active duty troops to refuse orders to deploy to the border. Uh, but one of our main claims uh, we try to emphasize is that this caravan issue right now, using military force on nonviolent people trying to seek a better life, escaping violence that was caused by the U.S. itself. If this moment right now doesn't see any large resistance from both the military and the public at large, it will show Trump and his administration that taking uh, this type of action is okay. Now, if you were to ask any Afghan or Iraqi or other person affected by U.S. imperialism, they would have told you, you know, well, what were you thinking? Of course, this was going to happen. Hell, even if you ask people <laughs> who participated in uh, 
some of the activist uh, movements in Ferguson, Baltimore over the past few years, it had been like the militarization is already here. But seeing the actual official military deployment of U.S. troops to the U.S.-Mexican border is a startling precedent. And if this doesn't go, uh, if this goes unchallenged, then it's only going to ratchet up the military repression that's already happening abroad and ratchet up the military repression that's coming uh, from inside the U.S. borders slowly but surely. Everyone should definitely read that letter that that you wrote, Spencer, with Roy Fanning. It's excellent. It's on the nation.com. It's on Common Dreams. It's it's uh, uh, it's on our Twitter if you're having trouble finding it. But it's a really important and, and powerful statement. But like, I don't I don't also want to go back to, you know, what you mentioned about Pittsburgh. You know, the, the Pittsburgh massacre at the synagogue, which uh, was rightly described as the largest anti-Semitic killing ever in the United States. I think what was, was missing from that story was that it, it wasn't just an anti-Semitic killing, which it was. It was against the it was about the caravan. I mean, the guy, the last thing that the shooter said before he went into the synagogue to kill everyone was, I'm not going to stand by while my country is invaded like I'm going in. And he targeted that synagogue because it was a progressive Jewish synagogue that was aiding refugees and that was going to be aiding migrants in the caravan. So it was absolutely because of the hysteria that has been whipped up by Trump, by the Republicans, by the right wing that led to that killing. And the, the idea of the troop deployment to say that there is an invasion coming and that we need to send our soldiers to protect our country. That's why these vigilantes are, are taking this kind of really horrific fascist violence. I mean, it has that that impact. So not only are you doing, uh, Spencer, what you just mentioned of of hurting people that are we have no reason to hurt and should be compassionate and, and welcome with open arms and also laying the laying the ground for kind of a larger uh, militarization. But we're it's, it's inspiring this kind of right wing fascist violence and racist violence within the country as well. Right. And if you look at who uh, within uh, the American public is supporting this currently. Uh, just look at what some of the varying uh, white supremacist groups and neo-fascist groups are saying about it. Uh, the combined efforts of uh, the Trump administration, as well as various uh, right-wing media outlets, such as Fox News, are all saying the things that many of these white supremacists and more out in the open groups have been saying for a long time now. And, and that's why I um, made sure to mention this conspiratorial mindset that permeates uh, the fact that this is gaining traction at such a such an alarming rate is very troubling uh, for what this can mean for the future, especially now that military force uh, is on the table. Um, Mike, you brought to my attention uh, something uh, Representative uh, Steve King said uh, regarding the caravan. <laughs> if you won't mind sharing that. Yeah, I mean, he he's saying that the caravan is a plot by the left to destroy so-called American culture. Now, of course, what he really means is white culture. Um, he also said that uh, we cannot restore our civilization with somebody else's babies. And what he's referring to is, uh, you know, immigrants coming to the U.S. And, and having children threatening American culture and American civilization being, uh, of course, what he's referring to is white culture and, and white civilization. Um, and so, of course, he is one of the people very much for this militarization of the border. Um, that's whose side you're finding yourself on. I mean, there's no other way to look at your role uh, in this, whether it's directly or indirectly. Um, if you're finding yourself on the same side as neo-Nazis and white supremacists, 
you know, you should, you're probably on the wrong side. In fact, you're hundred percent of the time on the wrong side. And, th and that's, what's actually happening. You know, there's been a lot of, I I've seen a, a lot of stuff that we really need to reject about, uh, how this is just a political stunt, right? Um, right. even Obama at a recent campaign rally, I think just yesterday said that we, you know, it's, it's shameful. This political Trump is using soldiers as a political stunt. Uh, and then we've seen all these other articles that are like, ah, the soldiers aren't going to be armed. So there, this is just, this is just for show. And it's just a political stunt. It's not, a, I mean, in some ways it is a political stunt, right? It is this before the midterms, they want to, uh, you know, ramp up fear and hatred of immigrants and, um, project this kind of strong police state type, uh, you know, dictatorial figure to protect us from from hordes of ISIS fighters and things like that. You know, that's what they're presenting in, in terms of political stunt. But the troops they're actually physically sending, that is not a political stunt. They're you're doing border operations. You're the the photos are out there. They're putting up barbed wire. They're they're mounting up for patrols. Uh there's there's all these uh soldiers in uniform that are like fixing like ICE and border patrol trucks. Uh you know, so you're you're working with them. You're side by side uh, whether or not you're armed on these military deployments, it is it is serving a very serious function. Yes. So with that in mind, um, I, I've seen another article that's been making the rounds talking about how the Pentagon supposedly uh, rejected the border troop requests um, from the Department of Homeland Security. And it's it's kind of misleading um, on a number of reasons. So the Pentagon, the Pentagon said no uh, with regard to the active duty soldiers performing emergency law enforcement uh, functions, mainly because this would run afoul of the posse comitatus law. And what is that law, Spencer? Uh, so essentially, it's it dates back to um, uh, the Civil War, the mid to late nineteenth century. Uh, posse comitatus prevents uh, the military from serving as a uh, police force uh, within the United States, um, mm -hmm. unless. Right there's an emergency situation, uh, which tr uh, Trump is trying to frame this as, but it was denied. But while the Pentagon rejected uh, the request for the reserve, uh, quote-unquote, protection force, it simultaneously approved all of the other uh, DHS uh, requests. So the point here is that sometimes you see people who interpret the military as, okay, well, these troops aren't combat arms. They're not necessarily infantry mm -hmm. troops. So everything will be all right. But as we've explained a number of times on the show, the, the line between combat arms and non-combat arms is especially blurred uh, today now more than ever. It has been for a while. So just because you don't see an infantry brigade being deployed to the border, it doesn't mean that this still isn't a very dire situation. I mean... The entirety, the entirety of the 89th Military Police Brigade out of Fort Hood, Texas, is being deployed to the border. Now, if you look at the images of them preparing to load up uh, their trucks to go down there, it looks as if they're getting ready to go on patrol uh, with the, yep. the equipment they're packing up, the equipment they're carrying themselves. So do not for a second think that the Pentagon rejecting one facet of this operation means that there are those with a level head at the higher echelons of command who are trying to prevent this from happening. No, what's really going on is they're trying to carry this out in the most effective way possible that mm -hmm. doesn't give the military bad press. And that's really yeah. the main thing to take away from this particular article you've seen tossed around. 
Yeah, absolutely. And and of course they're they're not sending, you know, infantry brigades to like do, you know, like frontline combat patrols and stuff because that's there's there's no one there's no one invading the country. I mean, it's just like of of course it is just going to be, you know, these surveillance units and and police units and things like that because the whole purpose of the mission is to help the border patrol and in a lot of ways help these right-wing militias that are already doing this is to help them seek out find migrant families that are trying to cross the border, find them and capture them, put them in jail, separate the children into detention facilities, and then deport them back to their countries where they're likely going to be killed. I mean, that's the operation. So, so when we hear, oh, the soldiers aren't going to be armed. Well, of course we, they don't, of course they don't need to be armed. There's not going to be no fighting. No one's going to be attacking them. The whole point is so they can help border patrol capture uh, desperate in need migrants who had no other choice but to flee and put them in cages and then send them back uh, to their deaths. I mean, so so that that's the it, just because there's not guns doesn't mean it's it's not a violent operation. There's still going to be violence just through other means uh, other than than shooting people. Uh, of course, shooting people could happen too. And the fact that Trump gave this really outrageous statement to the press saying that rocks should be treated as rifles. I mean, this is. I mean, we don't even have to 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 say how how outrageous that it, this is. I mean, I trust that nobody listening. Uh, would ever follow orders like that. Um, it's just so reprehensible. But it was a it was a signal. I mean, it was a signal to the far right and white supremacist forces to say that you know uh, we we see these people as less than human. Uh, we're willing to shoot uh, young refugees, teenagers, kids uh, if they just dare question our authority. I mean, it was really in, in indicative of kind of the the fascist creep that's going on in this country right now. But I did want to get into. Uh, a little bit about what what border operations really look like. You know, they're they're pulling the troops to to three states, right? Texas, Arizona, and California. But the caravan is not trying to sneak across the border in any of these states. I mean, they're the caravan. It's you know, it's pretty large. There is quite a lot of press with it. It's being followed the in, entire path. It's not sneaking across the border anywhere. I mean, it just doesn't make any sense from the standpoint of oh, we're we're protecting our border from this invasion. It's like, you know where they're going and the, <laughs> and you can see where they're going. And they're going to a legal port of entry to file for legitimate political asylum. And so before we get into that, um, that just says that if you're going to the border and the troops that are going to the border, they're not there to intercept this caravan. They're there to do just normal border patrol policy to assist border patrol and assist these far right fascist militias that are doing uh, border patrol duties in tandem with with the border patrol. Now, for a documentary, I went to the border a couple years ago in Arizona, and I went out with one of these organizations called No More Deaths. And this is a an activist organization, and they go hike out far into the desert with gallons of water, and they place water in strategic places where uh, migrants may find them, um, so they don't die in the desert. Uh, and so I went out with these teams to go put water out in the desert and everything. But the reason that they do that is because border patrol policy as a whole, the way that the, the border is is uh, policed and militarized, right? It has a specific purpose. So the U.S.-Mexico border is very, very long, right? And when Trump talks about building the wall and when we have a wall in many places, when we have border patrol and surveillance built up in many places along the border, they are only do that in areas that it is essentially safe to cross, where there is a safe passage from Mexico in the United States, right? The easy areas where you're not going to get lost in the desert and die. And so this is actually Border Patrol policy. It's actually written in their manual, it was discovered, that if they beef up security in the areas that are safe to cross, 
then immigrants will have no choice but to cross through the most treacherous, dangerous areas of the desert and where they are very likely to get lost and die in the desert. And there are thousands upon thousands of immigrants just in the past few years that have gone on this path and died in the desert and their bodies are found all the time. The Border Patrol actually called this strategy uh, deterrence by death, meaning that if immigrants know that they will die of thirst in the desert trying to come here, maybe they won't try to come here. But uh, of course, that policy hasn't worked. People still try to flee to the United States despite this really horrible journey. So if you are going to the border to help Border Patrol, that's what you're helping do. You're not just trying to catch people who are crossing the border. You are literally trying to catch people crossing the border in certain areas so as to funnel them into the dangerous areas where they will die and where their children will die a really, really terrible death. You know, dying from dehydration in, in the desert is, is quite a horrible way to die um, and painful way to die. Even if you're just one of these, you know, if you're one of the medical personnel that's deployed from one of these medical units that, that we listed. You know, you are part of this larger operation to beef up certain areas, so to make migrants go through other areas where they will die. So, you know, as we're discussing border policy uh, as a whole here, I think we need to focus on uh, the issue of political asylum. Um, the particular issue, I think, again, is being obfuscated uh, by this uh, military operation and in the current discourse uh, regarding this. The caravan itself is comprised of legitimate political refugees. Political asylum is a legal right, and the caravans are explicitly saying they were going to a legal port of entry for the right to asylum. And it's completely within the capacity of the United States to take in every single refugee on the caravan, give them assistance, housing, and provide them with work. Instead, though, they are being attacked as a part of a resurgent racist movement that is going on everywhere uh, currently uh, in the United States. This is such a big part of it, Spencer. I mean, the U.S. is completely capable of helping all of these people. It is completely within our capacity. It would just be a, a tiny fraction of the resources we have to spare to welcome in every single one of these people and give them legal status and, and give them a leg up and, and help them out. I mean, what, what's wrong with that? I mean, the only reason it's because, as we mentioned before, Representative Steve King said, it is other people's babies who are trying to destroy American civilization. It's because these are people from Central America coming to the United States. And then that's what is behind uh, doing the not doing the right thing, which is just, you know, helping these people who are who are political refugees who have the right under U.S. law to asylum. Right. And again, to, to put this uh, within the scope of a larger totality, uh, these people who are fleeing their various Central American countries aren't doing this out of a choice. They're doing this out of necessity. They would rather no one wants to leave their homes. I mean, it, it's much like in mm -hmm. Syria. Syria has been ripped apart by imperial machinations. And so there's an abundance of refugees who have to escape violence because of imperialist interference, much like what happened in Iraq, much like what has happened in Palestine and, and many places uh, throughout the world. So it's really a question of life and death. And, you know, th these people who are traveling with nothing but the clothes on their back are just doing this out of a last ditch effort for a chance at surviving and, and living a life with material dignity. Right. And of course, uh, as we said before, many of them are children. There's actually like 12 year olds who are traveling alone with their younger siblings who have fled. If you are turning your back on on children who have nothing, 
and who are fleeing uh, being killed themselves. I mean, you know, you can only, only racism can fuel that kind of, of, of heartlessness. And, and that's what this is. There's several media outlets that are traveling with the caravan. Uh, I, uh, someone I know named Gloria Lariva just arrived in Mexico and linked up with the caravan and, and they're doing some eyewitness reporting on liberationnews.org. And so it, it's important as the, the mainstream media is, is feeding uh, you all the lies about the caravan and while the, you know, even the, the democratic stations are doing a very poor job of standing up to it, um, there's some real grassroots media that's getting the real stories from people. And so I just wanted to quote uh, one of the people that they that Gloria Lariva and uh, Adan Santiago interviewed in Mexico, uh, it's a man named Dennis Alfredo, who's traveling with his wife, his teenage son, and his four-year-old daughter with the caravan. And he said, quote, we have done nothing wrong in our country. And he pats his pocket full of paperwork. And he says, my wife and I have all our papers ready to present. We invite Donald Trump to investigate us one by one, and he will find no problem. So contradicting that idea that they are you know, criminals fleeing persecution and, and all of these things. And then another uh, caravan member, um, Giovanni, uh, five family members uh, traveling alongside them, um, is quoted as saying, there's a lot of crime in Honduras. The gangs are affecting us very much. They want to kill us because they shake us down for money, and we don't have any because we are poor. So they threaten us with death. That is why we come here. So again, you see a group of people who are responding to increasingly violent situations that are the direct result of what the U.S. has done inside those countries for a very long time now. That's right. And I mean, anyone who has taken an airplane in the United States and looked out the window can see that there is quite a lot of space in this country. We're not like running out of space and like just can't fit any more people. And there's quite a bit of wealth in this country that our government controls. And so, you know, the idea, and there are quite a lot of things that need to be done, right? I mean, the idea that people think it's a crazy idea that we could give everyone who's coming to this country a, a job. I mean, there's a lot of roads that need to be rebuilt. There's housing that needs to be built. I mean, there's so much that needs to be done in this country that could provide jobs for everyone. I mean, it's, it's such an easy solution to just create a program uh, that, uh, turn something good out of this situation rather than turning it in to like a, a beacon for white supremacy um, and like a rallying cry for the racists in this country. So in trying to understand any of these situations we've experienced over the past two years, uh, this border problem is not just an isolated event. It's part of a larger totality. And in order to understand the border situation in this deployment, we need to understand uh, the totality of the situation itself. So to put things uh, in a larger context, we need to understand the rise of the fascist right in the United States. Um, I mean, everyone should be alarmed about this. You shouldn't live in fear, but you should be taking it seriously and understanding what work needs to be done in the coming days. Um, too many are saying that it's strictly a failure of the Democrats or it's, you know, poor whites being abandoned by NAFTA that have led to the rise of Trump. But in reality, it's a resurgence of far-right racism. The Democrats failing to articulate a compelling political vision is certainly an issue. And uh, various groups who have been abandoned by uh, NAFTA and other neoliberal policies are certainly uh, aspects that need to be considered. But again, those are part of a larger uh, totality. Um, and so we don't want to downplay uh, what's happening uh, here, you know, there's this this phrase we often see something to the effect of as America, America has always been this way. Trump just removed the mask. 
that, that's true in some sense. I mean, of course, the United States is a country founded by white slave owners and so on. But what we're seeing right now is a uh, particular series of events that are both historically contingent and specific to the existing political conditions. You know, a lot of people say that Trump was elected just by, you know, poor white people, but abandoned by NAFTA, as you said, Spencer. In fact, polls show that like the median income of a Trump voter was like over 90,000 a year or something like that. So the the whole poor white worker supporting Trump, I, I don't really think uh, holds weight when you look at the, the mean income level Absolutely. of Trump voters. It cannot be said enough that the reason Trump won is because his base are well-off white suburbanites, typically. Um, the reason he won is because of voter disenfranchisement. He doesn't have a yep. popular base by any means. He just has a select group of people that are enfranchised in this country and that don't feel the alienation that the very uh, vast majority of voters in this country uh, do. Right, and, and many people have correctly pointed out that of the rise of Trump was directly tied to the racist reaction to having a black president. So a reaction having a, you know, Trump's political career really began with peddling the Trump or the Obama birther conspiracy that Obama was born in Kenya. That was Donald Trump. And that was his kind of rise to political prominence was peddling that conspiracy theory. And anyone can remember during the campaign, it wasn't that Trump was doing a better job speaking to white workers is why he was propelled. I mean, I remember every Trump campaign rally, everyone was just chanting, build the wall. I mean, that's what he rose to power on was anti-immigrant hysteria and this kind of a racist law and order response to Black Lives Matter protest is saying that, you know, we need to take our streets back. Our streets are being burned down uh, by these by, by disloyal people. I mean, so it was it was the combination of a, of a black president, the emergence of the heroic Black Lives Matter movement. Um, and anti-immigrant hysteria that propelled him into the presidency. And so, of course, all the things we've seen since he became president, you know, shouldn't come as a surprise, but it, it's it's carrying on from that. And so we can't see it uh, out of that larger context. And there's been many, many things that have happened over the course of the Trump administration that have shown that there's this rising white supremacist movement. And and what I, I actually think that there's like a threat of the U.S. moving uh, towards fascism in, in a very real way. And of course, the border militarization is really just the tip of the iceberg. The demonization and attack on immigrants is much broader, even within the military. We know the Trump administration has had hundreds of immigrant recruits discharged without explanation, and others are given actual loyalty tests, which is quite bizarre. And of course, Trump has just said he even wants to abolish part of the Constitution regarding birthright citizenship, a really unprecedented racist attack and the military is used to back up all these racist policies. For example, when Trump signed the Muslim ban, he did it at the Pentagon next to General Mattis. You know, Mattis also offered DOD facilities as jails for Trump's child detentions as a show of political support from the military. And the link to white supremacy is sometimes more direct. For example, we just learned that Trump has diverted millions of dollars in VA funds, funds for veterans, to pay for beefed up security at Confederate monuments, like to protect these useless racist statues from protests. Like, are you fucking serious? And while it's true that there are many forces behind Trump, like Mike Pence and others, Trump himself is the phenomenon that has summoned this resurgent movement of white supremacists and who leads it, which is manifesting itself both in government policies and in vigilante attacks. And he and this far right movement are getting stronger. 
Trump is stronger than ever. He's in interviews, you can see he's unabashed about lying, about advocating for fascistic policies, and so on. I think one of the really scary things that Trump has done is really giving these people a green light. Um, I mean, we can't forget that Trump's first pardon was of Joe Arpaio. Joe Arpaio was just this fascist sheriff in Arizona who literally, I mean, was his, he had, you know, just concentration camps of immigrants, right? His whole thing was uh, fighting the war on immigrants. And Joe Arpaio literally, this is why he was, was indicted for, for crimes against humanity. He would take all the immigrant, undocumented immigrants that they would arrest and they would dress them in no clothes except for pink underwear and pink handcuffs and march them through town in front of like screaming mobs of racists. I mean, that happened in this country just a few years ago. I mean, this is like straight up Nazi stuff. So Arpaio was for all, and that's just that there's a litany of crimes that he committed along those lines. And of course, deputizing right-wing militias. I mean, just straight up Nazi shit he was doing. Trump pardoned him. And that was a message. Trump also pardoned members of the Bundy militia that were like, you know, going to war against the federal government. I mean, he is sending a signal to these right wing and white supremacist forces that if you take extra legal action and you do things that are illegal in the name of defending our American civilization, I have your back. That's a very scary thing that we're seeing and we're seeing grow in a lot of ways. You know, people are actually dying and, and being beat up and, and attacked you know, in this resurgence of, of the right wing. But Trump's response to Charlottesville saying, refusing to condemn the, the Nazis and the white supremacists. I mean, really refused um, until he was really forced to, to say something. But he basically, you know, in, was encouraging them uh, even more. And so these are all really dangerous signs, right? I mean, people want to say Trump uh, is Hitler and people want to say that's too extreme. You know, he's not Hitler, but he could very well become our Hitler. And these are little signs from the, the border deployment to the things he's saying about the Charlottesville and the MAGA bomber, the pardons he's giving. Um, I mean, his his actually connections with the far right. I mean, the fact that there's far right individuals, like actual Infowars people that were like his advisors and in his administration. I mean, these are all the things that after we're in uh, a state of fascism to say, oh yeah, we should have seen that coming. There are a lot of warning signs. I mean, these are the warning signs. Yeah. Uh, and so... You know, in trying to understand what fascism actually is, it's it's a phrase we've seen, I think, sometimes tossed around too haphazardly, but increasingly it is becoming uh, the relevant operational term here to understand uh, what's going on. I mean, there are definitely, I think, three um, on the macro level defining features of fascism, one of them being far-right politics, hyper-nationalism being another and then also authoritarianism. Those three together are like on a larger scale, uh, three main uh, signifiers of fascism. And then within that, you have different variants of it, whether it's Nazism as seen in Germany or Italian fascism itself. But another important aspect, I think, that we need to hone in on here, and, and Matt Christman of Chapo Trap House brought this up a few weeks back when he was discussing fascism, but it's the uh, the transfer of colonialist ideas and policies from the periphery, from those countries they're exploiting abroad, uh, the transfer of those measures into the metropole, into the borders of that colonial entity itself. So if you could view places like Iraq or Afghanistan right now as almost a, a, uh, a laboratory of imperialist methods, tactics, and policies, 
and you observe how now, as we discussed earlier, troops are being mobilized within the border and those varying tactics uh, used abroad. And this is why I said, you know, if you were to ask an Afghan or an Iraqi, they would tell you, well, hey, this has been here for a while. But you're seeing them slowly but surely starting to occur within uh, the borders. And again, this is beyond Trump himself on some level, because uh, under Obama, that's when we had the repression, the, the military police style repression of various protest movements from 2014 to him uh, getting out of office. But Trump, uh, in many ways, his election heightened the contradictions and has accelerated a lot of this process. And so, well, again, he's more of a parody fascist than a fascist himself. He has unleashed the forces of fascism. And when we're starting to see that uh, materialize in a very real way, with this Mexico-United States border uh, deployment. And, there, and there's these different armed forces of, of, the, of the fascism also, right? I mean, there's the official state forces, like the police, you know, like we saw in, in Ferguson and, and other protests, militarized police. Um, you know, border patrol being just the worst kind of people. I mean, worse than cops. I mean, you know, like I, like I said, when I went to the border to put water bottles out for crossing migrants, I mean, border patrol goes out to look for the water bottles and just cuts them open so the water comes out, or they sometimes like poison the water or put things that make people sick in the water. I mean, you have to be just a, a sick Nazi to do that kind of thing, trying to kill children by, by denying them water. Um, but then you have your unofficial forces, which are what we're seeing, these uh, far-right gangs, white supremacist organizations on the rise, who are committing street violence against the left, against opponents of Trump. It's sanctified and it's excused by the highest levels of power. And so all these little things, even the MAGA bomber was like excused by Donald Trump. He was like, well, if CNN didn't want, get, want to get sent a bomb, they should have given me fair coverage. I mean, so, so the kind of backing up of uh, street forces that are separate from the actual state forces, I mean, that's a, a telltale sign of, of fascism as well. And so that's why, like, if you're part of the official forces on the ground carrying out the policies of a far right and, you know, hard, pretty hard to argue against it being also a white supremacist, ideologically white supremacist administration, um, you're, you're playing a role in that kind of larger growth of a, of a far-right movement here. So it's, it's your direct actions on the border are also part of, of much larger actions, leading to kind of a very scary, almost civil war type scenario in this country right now. I'd, I'd like to leave uh, our listeners with one final um, piece of information that if they want to pursue it, at a more in-depth level, we can maybe leave a link to it. But um, yeah, uh, Umberto Eco, uh, the Italian novelist and philosopher who uh, died in uh, January of 2016, he had uh, an essay he penned in 1995 known as Urfascism, which has uh, what he called the 14 features of eternal fascism or Urfascism, as I said. And I'd like to just read them out real quick in the context of everything yes. we discussed. And then... You know, you could email us or contact us anyway is easy for you. Kind of ruminate on these a little bit, put them in the context of what we're observing right now, and then see how we could uh, find a way to um, take these theories and use that to build up a, a larger uh, anti-fascist block. So anyway, uh, to give you an abbreviated version of Echo's list, uh, I just want to give you the 14 points up front. And then if you want to read them more in depth, again, we'll leave that link. But one is the cult of tradition. Two is the rejection of modernism. Three is the cult of action for action's sake. Four, disagreement is treason. Five is fear of difference. Six 
is appeal to social frustration. Seven, the obsession with the plot. Eight, the humiliation by the wealth and force of their enemies. Nine, pacifism is trafficking with the enemy. Ten, contempt for the weak. Eleven, everybody is educated to become a hero. Twelve, machismo and weaponry. Thirteen, selective populism. And fourteen, ur-fascism speaks newspeak. So think about that. Arm yourself with this theory. And perhaps, and I hope, it will offer you a lens for understanding uh, the task at hand. That's a scary list, Spencer, because uh, you can find examples in our current society of every one of those 14 points. Um, yeah, all too readily, all too readily. Right, and so we we want to get into some more of the history about what is is behind uh, people, our, our brothers and sisters, really, who are, who are risking their life to come across Mexico to try to um, provide a better life for, for their families and, and their children. Um, but before that, we know that, you know, for any of our listeners who are in the military, we want to provide you with some advice and resources uh, going forward before we get into some some more of that kind of stuff. And so I think there's kind of three levels to this. You know, first of all, there's this just idea that, um, you know, that Trump has said you should treat someone throwing rocks as a rifle. Um, so I think this goes without saying, if you are deployed to the border and you are given these kinds of orders, uh, absolutely, uh, you're within your rights to refuse those orders. But I, I don't think that that's uh, something that anyone is is wondering whether or not they should follow. I'm, I'm, that's pretty cut and dry, that those are highly immoral orders, textbook war crimes. And so, you know, there should be no uh, confusion about whether or not that's something you have to do. Uh, no matter who's telling you to do it. But there's two other uh, levels to this. One is if you're just deployed, ordered to deploy to the border at all, right? If you're one of these units that is called up already, or uh, in the future, they call up more units and, and you're on, on one of those units to be called up. You don't have to go. Don't, don't do it. I mean, there's no, there's no way to go and be able to have a clean conscience about it. No matter what you're doing, no matter what role you're in on this deployment, uh, you could de definitely be responsible for the deaths of people um, crossing the border and part of, as we talked about, this kind of larger plan of resurgent, uh, you know, far right uh, fascism in this country. So if you're ordered to deploy, there's a variety of, of resources out there for you. I wanted to list a couple really quickly, uh, but there's three numbers that you can call. Uh, there's the GI Rights Hotline, a really great organization that has someone always on call to let you know what your options are and to provide legal help. That number is 877-447-4487. You can find them online as well. There's also the National Lawyers Guild Military Law Task Force. The NLG is a really great organization. Uh, Kathy Gilbert usually is answering that phone. Really uh, skilled legal advisor when it comes to UCMJ. Uh, so I definitely recommend giving her a call. Their number is 619-463-2369. And then there's Courage to Resist, which is a great organization that helps war resistors, has a lot of experience that the actual Jeff Patterson, the, the founder of it, is a Gulf War resistor himself. Uh, their number is 510-488-3559. So a couple different numbers you can call, get different bits of advice. Of course, you can always contact us on our social media or at eyesleftpod at gmail.com. But there are so many resources out there if you're questioning being part of this. Um, but then Spencer, I mean, there's not even just the, you know, there's the whether or not you're ordered directly to take part in this, but you know, even if you're not directly involved, 
and you're in the military now, you're you're part of this larger thing. I mean, that's right. Think about it again in terms of the totality. Uh, and as we said, if this deployment comes to pass with little to no resistance, that signifies to the Trump administration that this type of thing is okay, that it becomes publicly acceptable. And it's only a matter of time then before another instance like this occurs. Certainly, no one could read the future and nothing is written, but this sets a very, very troubling precedent. And if you're active duty right now, this is a glaring instance of how complicity isn't just taking part in the action directly, but turning a blind eye uh, while it's occurring. You know, we, we've gone through a couple iterations of these kind of moral crises since Trump was elected, right? I mean, one of the big things was this this family separation issue and that the Trump administration was quite literally putting children in cages, in jail, you know, little children separated from their parents for months at a time with no path to, to get them reunited. Of course, that's still happening. The Democrats have kind of given up on that uh, as an issue. But, you know, and I know that lots of people had questions about whether or not they could continue to serve after that. In fact, I I know someone, a uh, great guy, been in, you know, for about 15 years now and almost uh, just resigned over that issue alone, you know, giving up, you know, your retirement that you're just a few years away from. Um, and so I know that people, uh, you know, really well-meaning people in the military are, are faced with this crisis of conscience at these different points in Trump administration. But this, I mean, this happening now, I mean, if you've been biding your time, if you've been waiting to see whether or not you can be part of this military or not, or waiting for the time where you really have draw the line and take a stand. I mean, if this this is a better time than any to do that. I mean, it is so outrageous what he's doing. It's so uh, illegal in so many ways. Um, it's so much part of this this larger, really reprehensible racist uh, trajectory that if you were to take a stand now in any way, whether it's uh, secretly leaking information, whether it's doing a pulling a Spencer Rapone and just standing up and and saying you know fuck the military. Um, if it, it all the variety, of, if it's refusing deployment, I mean, there's so many ways that you can resist, uh, and no matter what way you you choose to do it, you will be supported by likely millions of people, at the very least, hundreds of thousands of people who actually care about the migrants that are that are crossing in this country, uh, who care about you. Uh, and who care about humanity and morality, unlike the people that are our so-called leaders. Right. And again, we completely understand it. It's a very difficult, very difficult and daunting situation to be in, to decide you're no longer going to go along with your daily activities as a soldier. But as, as Mike said, there are so many of us who are willing uh, to help you transition and to help you grapple uh, with this situation. And I always try to emphasize uh, the role of history in all of this and how we are always living in history at any given moment. Mm -hmm. And you need to think about how you yourself have a role to play in that history. And I think this, this situation right now is as indicative as any of how true, real, actual change happens from the rank and file, from those who might feel as if they're just another cog in the imperialist machine. Change happens when those people decide that they're no longer going to go along with things anymore. And while you might lose something in that process, again, it's never easy to resist, 
I cannot emphasize enough how much more you'll gain by deciding to take uh, those actions. With that in mind, Mike and I have received many of your emails regarding this situation over the past several weeks. And number one, we're sorry we haven't gotten back to all of them yet, but we are going to make a concerted effort to catch up uh, with a lot of those and engage with you in those conversations and hopefully start doing our little part in affecting uh, a hegemonic shift, if you will, of war resistors. That's right. And as we always say, uh, history is so important to understand any situation we're in. And so to give more context to all the things we talked about, uh, we're going to do a little special segment of Radical Military History. Your soldiers, sailors, airmen, marines, and coast guardmen are better educated than before, are better informed, and understand what the war is all about. So for this episode segment of Radical Military History, we're going to give some more context to the three countries that uh, are part of this migrant caravan. We know that Honduras, El Salvador, and Guatemala are the three countries that pretty much all of the migrants on the caravan are coming from. And so, of course, the U.S. military has a pretty great role in uh, shaping the, the current situation for all of those countries. These three countries we mentioned were essentially owned just by United Fruit Company alone and, of course, other mining giants that were you know, ravaging the country for its natural resources. And for hundreds of years, a small group of local elites were empowered by these colonial powers, while 99% of the population was sentenced to slave labor and poverty. In the 1950s, Movements of the poor started to be able to get organized and fight back. And as soon as that happened, as soon as United Fruit Company's profits were threatened, the United States began a strategy of brute military force, coups, propping up dictators, all sorts of horrible, horrible things to protect corporate profit. As part of that, they started something called the School of the Americas, uh, which of course still exists today. Spencer, uh, you were at Benning, which is where the School of the Americas is, but it's changed its name recently, right? What is it, WinSec? Yeah, uh, so it's currently known as the Western Hemisphere Institute for Security Cooperation. Um, so, yeah, abbreviated to WinSec. And it's still alive and well and just as active as it was during its inception. Mm, and so, Ted, we're going to get a little bit about what those types of actions were. But before we get into the negative side of this lesson, we want to introduce the topic with a really heroic figure in radical military history, and that's a veteran named Roy Bourgeois. Roy Bourgeois was an officer who did two tours in Vietnam. On his first tour, he was wounded in action and received a Purple Heart. But when he returned from Vietnam, Roy Bourgeois became a priest and went to Bolivia to work with the poor. It was there in the 1970s that he started to see what the U.S. government was doing there and in Latin America as a whole. Now, these U.S.-backed militias who were supposedly fighting for democracy were specifically targeting clergy because the clergy were advocating for the rights of the poor. So Father Roy found himself in yet another war zone. Then in 1980, U.S.-backed death squads in El Salvador, a country which we'll be talking more about, murdered four American women who worked for the Catholic Church. Three of them were nuns and two were personal friends of Father Roy. Not long after that, six Jesuit priests in El Salvador were massacred by the same death squads. And so Father Roy went to El Salvador. And I wanted to play a quick clip of him talking about what he learned there. Uh, and this is from a documentary that I produced called The U.S. School That Trained Dictators and Death Squads, which you can find on YouTube. Here is Roy Bourgeois. 
I was more fearful in El Salvador than I was in Vietnam. I spent a year in the military in Vietnam. I've never seen such abuse of power, such brutality of a military. I thought Bolivia was bad. This was far worse. Uh, there was no accountability. How could they rape and kill nuns who were working with the poor? How could they assassinate a bishop in, a, in church who's talking about the poor? What got us started was to see our country deeply involved, giving about a million dollars a day in military aid. The guns that were killing people was paid for by our tax money. But the big thing, when we learned that those who did the killing not only used our guns, they were trained in the United States at the U.S. Army School of the Americas at Fort Benning, Georgia. Many in our country with power saw what was going on in Latin America as a threat to their wealth and power. They could lose it. And therefore, of course, they are not going to go out and torture people and kill. This is where the military is essential. They won't do the dirty work. Oh, no, no. They'll talk the macho talk. We've got to go in. We have to, like, we have to go off to Vietnam. We have to go fight. No, no. They're, they're, they're not going to go. They will send young men and others to do their killing for them. They're, they're cowards, basically. And so, um, so the School of the Americas uh, was justified. And it was at a distance. They, they, they didn't really see the blood. They didn't hear the screams of someone tortured. They used others to do their dirty work for, for them. But it was all about an addiction to power, as many of us saw it. The, the biggest course there, counterinsurgency. Who were the insurgents? They were the landless farmers, the campesinos, who were doing what we would do if we were going to bed hungry at night and seeing our children die before their time. You begin to speak out, organize, and call for a living wage. They were the targets. The church women who were coming back to the U.S., you know, every now and then, to inform members of Congress what was going on there. They were the targets, religious leaders, especially labor leaders, union leaders, university students, health care workers, anyone that would be calling for reform, a living wage, health care, uh, running water, adequate housing, comunista, you are a communist. It's about really saving their lives and the lives of their children. It's so bad. If they stay, they die. They die from violence or from hunger. And so they do what we would do. They flee for life. I want to talk about Father Roy as a part of radical military history because he wasn't just a Vietnam veteran who then switched sides and then, you know, took the side of uh, the people that the U.S. was targeting. He is really the one that built the campaign around uh, raising awareness about what the School of the Americas was and what it was doing around the world. And the way that he brought this into mainstream consciousness and public consciousness and created all types of media scandals for the Army and for the School of the Americas, he did this by, uh, he got his blood drawn 
and he had his blood and all of these vials on his body and he snuck on to Fort Benning, Georgia. And he went to the steps of the School of the Americas on Fort Benning and took out his vials of blood and splattered his blood all over the steps, all over the sign, all over the door, just made a mess with his fluids. Uh, and of course, that was a hazmat crisis. They had to have big teams clean it up. Um, you know, and, and it was a big media story. And he went to jail for a year and a half in federal prison for that action. Uh, that would just be his first prison term for civil disobedience against School of the Americas. Collectively, he spent four years in federal prison um, doing different civil disobedience actions to draw attention to the School of the Americas, and then became the leader of this group called SOA Watch, uh, which had regular actions at Fort Benning, uh, led by victims of School of the Americas graduates to, to bring attention to it. And that's actually one of the names reasons that they changed the name to WinSec is because there is so much stigma attached to the, to the name School of the Americas through the work of uh, Vietnam veteran uh, Roy Bourgeois. And so that's the introduction to this thing called the School of the Americas. And we're going to talk about what exactly the School of the Americas and the U.S. military as a whole uh, has done in each of these three countries uh, that people are now fleeing from, El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras. To begin with Honduras, um, to give you a little bit of an overview of the situation there, uh, there's been eight U.S. military interventions in the country since 1890. So over a, a hundred years of U.S. interference uh, in, in the region. Uh, of course, the most glaringly obvious one and the one we're most familiar with currently uh, comes from 2009 when the uh, U.S. orchestrated coup removed the democratically elected uh, popular progressive president, President Zelaya. Four of six of the generals involved uh, in the coup were School of the Americas uh, graduates. Uh, Honduras today, I mean, no one will deny that all of the violence in Honduras today has been since the coup in 2009. I mean, it just unleashed such a horrific era. I mean, it's like the most dangerous country in the world for journalists now because the government just murders journalists who try to uh, report against the government. I mean, they've, they've ushered in a, a, a fascist state. Um, this was done with the knowledge of the State Department in 2009. And so uh, most of the cases we're going to go into are, are the history is through the 80s. But this is very recent. I mean, this is not old news. This isn't just 30 years ago when the U.S. has been uh, determining the outcome of, of the what's the governments in these countries. In the very recent history, we've seen this happen, and, and that's why so many people are fleeing from, from Honduras. Um, so, of course, it's not just limited to Honduras. We also want to go into El Salvador a little bit more in depth. You heard earlier Roy Bourgeois talk about his firsthand experience in El Salvador. El Salvador also has had several military interventions in the past hundred years to determine the outcome of their government. Most significantly, though, between the years 1981 and 1992, the United States government and military funded and aided on the ground uh, death squads. Anyone who was progressive to the left of fascism uh, was targeted. And through that 10-year period, these U.S.-backed death squads murdered over 75,000 people and succeeded in completely crushing the progressive people's movement in that country. And I just want to list a, a couple examples of how heinous that really was and the role of the School of the Americas and the U.S. military in it. In 1981, a village of El Juanquilo, U.S.-backed forces massacred an entire village, uh, 70 civilians, 40 of them children, 
uh, were all massacred. Uh, all of the women in this village were raped before being killed, including several girls who were under the age of 12. And while the U.S. forces weren't there themselves, U.S. proxy forces were. So in that incident, in that massacre, three officers were cited by the U.N. for war crimes. Two of those three officers were graduates of the School of the Americas. Now, that uh, incident, heinous as it sounds, was nothing in comparison to the massacre at El Mazote. On December 11th, 1981, U.S.-backed forces captured an entire village, surrounded the village. They lined everyone up. They separated men and women. They brought men into one building and boys into one building, and they brutally tortured all of them. They brought all the women and girls into another building. They raped every single one of them. And then they killed every single person in the village. Over 200 civilians were massacred. And not just adults. I mean, they were... It's, it's gruesome, but there is children discovered who are two years old who are hung from trees with their throats slit. Twelve officers were cited by the UN for war crimes in the massacre. Ten of those officers were School of the Americas graduates trained and working with uh, the United States military. Of course, during that time also, 1980 to 1985, the U.S. had installed a dictator, Roberto Arrieta, who was directly responsible for the death of around 30,000 people. And this, you know, U.S.-backed dictator, who was very much praised by the U.S. government, he was known as Blowtorch Bob because he was personally known for taking a blowtorch, you know, like a blue flame blowtorch, and using it on people's genitalia uh, during torture. Um, and this is the guy that the U.S. thought was this great beacon of democracy. And so that's the history uh, of El Salvador that you need to know. You know, it, it could be a very different country today, but when the people of El Salvador wanted to determine their own destiny, the U.S. unleashed this really, really most despicable uh, force you can think of that, that turned the country into what it is today. Guatemala has had three U.S. military interventions since uh, 1890. Now, the, the most notorious of these that kind of laid a blueprint for further U.S. Uh, interference in uh, varying countries that oppose uh, U.S. hegemony is probably uh, in 1954. Up until that time in uh, Guatemala, the Guatemalan people had been under the heel of the U.S.-backed uh, United Fruit Company. During that time period, you saw a number of uh, agrarian laborers try to come together to, re to resist uh, these uh, repressive actions, um, the highly exploitative work they would have to do at behest of the United Fruit Company. But they were all um, violently opposed by the United Fruit Company and the U.S.-backed dictator uh, Jorge Ubico. For example, you would see uh, chain gangs of, of prisoners uh, being uh, bandied about under this regime. So this caught the attention of a military officer, uh, Colonel Arbenz, who ran uh, a campaign in the 1950 elections of Guatemala. And he defeated his nearest challenger by a margin of over 50%. Uh, he took office in March of 1951 and enacted a number of social reforms uh, such as expanding the right to vote, uh, the ability of workers to organize, legitimizing political parties, and allowing public uh, debate. The most important of his policy agenda was probably uh, Decree 900, otherwise known as the Agrarian uh, Reform Law. 
It redistributed unused lands of sizes greater than 224 acres to local peasants, and it compensated landowners with government bonds. Land from at most 1,700 estates was redistributed to about 500,000 families, which is one-sixth of the country's population. Now, this is important. The policies by our Benz were by no means something we could call communist. They were relatively social democratic reforms that were trying to uh, move Guatemala into a situation where they could break these even pre-capitalist chains that they were beholden to because of various U.S.-backed dictators and policies in the region. But uh, these policies ran afoul of the United Fruit Company, uh, and so they lobbied the U.S. to have him overthrown. In the 1954 Guatemalan coup d'etat, which was engineered by the United States uh, Department of State and the CIA, Arbenz was overthrown and replaced by Colonel Carlos Castillo Armas, who was a very brutal uh, dictator uh, in his wake. Now, I wanted to mention regarding the 54 coup d'etat, part of why it went off without a hitch and was so successful is because within the United States, um, there was this figure by the name of Edward Bernays. He was the nephew of Sigmund Freud, and he's known as the pioneer of what we now call public relations or PR and propaganda. And Edward Bernays, he helped manufacture the consent necessary that would allow for a successful coup d'etat of the democratically elected uh, Colonel Arbenz. He actually helped create something called the Middle America Information Bureau. Uh, The United Fruit Company financed this bureau, which provided information to the newspapers about the so-called communist penetration in Guatemala. It's important to note that Arbenz himself, again, was more of a, a democratic socialist. Of course, on this show, you know, Mike and I are avowed communists, but uh, even someone like Arbenz, who really was aiming for more of a non-aligned uh, status of his country, just the mere instance of land and wealth redistribution was seen as such a threat to U.S. hegemony that this led to a concerted effort uh, among all echelons of uh, the United States government to overthrow a democratically uh, elected leader. So Bernays helps stand up this Middle America Information Bureau. It distributes what one might call fake news <laughs> to a number of agencies and creates a wide public outcry that Arbenz is this brutal communist dictator. And as I said, he was overthrown, and this leads to a number of various uh, situations of political turmoil in Guatemala, uh, which Mike will go into in a minute. But I just want to mention this part of uh, Bernays because Bernays' method, uh, his methods are still very much used today. And to show you just how sordid his uh, methodologies were, his books were read um, by figures such as uh, Goebbels, of course, of uh, the Nazi regime, because they were so effective at creating a a false image of the real uh, information in society and controlling uh, masses of people to do the bidding uh, of empire. Adam Curtis has an excellent documentary called The Century of the Self from 2002 that kind of goes into the situation. But the Guatemalan people uh, suffer uh, under the regime that 
comes after our bends, and then this continues on uh, into the 80s, which Mike is going to discuss now. That's right. And, um, you know, that that intervention that the CIA uh, orchestrated in 1954 with the nationalization of the United Fruit Company, you know, with bombings, the coup, all that uh, that Spencer mentioned, I mean, 200,000 people or more were killed in that time period. I mean, that's that's such a massive loss of life to defend United Fruit Company. I mean, it's literally there is no other rationale except to defend United Fruit Company. But, you know, that's uh, quite indicative of uh, U.S. policy for centuries up until now. But, you know, in the 1980s, the U.S. backed a dictator named Carlos Montt. Ronald Reagan himself said Carlos Montt was a great man who was doing something great for the country of Guatemala. Um, Montt oversaw uh, what was dubbed a scorched earth policy, where predominantly the indigenous communities of Guatemala uh, were the ones that were enemies of the state, particularly because of land rights, because indigenous people thought they had the right to the land that their people had been on for thousands of years, and the fruit companies thought that it was their land. And so Carlos Mont just oversaw the massacre of these people. He wiped out 90% of indigenous communities, this Ronald Reagan-backed uh, dictator named Carlos Mont in the 80s. There is uh, some kind of justice in this situation. In 2013, Mont became the first Latin American leader to be convicted of genocide. But of course, even though he was brought to justice and his scorched earth policy ended, uh, people are still fleeing for their lives. And they are today. And many of the people in the caravan are people that are fleeing the types of violence that stayed. I did want to play a quick clip from someone else in that documentary named Maria. Maria uh, came to the United States as a small child as a political refugee from Guatemala after her father was murdered and then her mother uh, was threatened with assassination as well. My father, Jorge Alberto Rosalpa Sipas, was disappeared on August 12, 1983. In 1985, two years after his disappearance, um, after uh, an unrelenting search for, for my father, um, my mom, too, became a target for, um, for the military. And uh, she, she made the dis difficult decision to leave the country. The counterinsurgency tactics that were used in Guatemala to silence the population really targeted anybody who opposed the government in any way, shape, or form. This means labor organizers who are trying to organize, uh, educators who are, you know, denouncing um, the educational system, or doctors who are um, accusing the, the government of, of being responsible for the high levels of malnutrition in the country, etc. So it was very easy to become a target. Anybody that opposed the government in any way could be targeted. Our family was essentially ripped apart because many of us had to flee to different, different places. We, we petitioned for asylum. My mom petitioned for asylum. I was, I was two years old when I came to this country. My brother was 13 months. My mom petitioned for asylum. Um, her case was, our case was denied repeatedly, and uh, we even had a, a deportation order at one point. And it, it was hard at this time because also, remember, the United States is backing the civil wars that were occurring in Central America. So for, for a family or for anybody to receive asylum, not only do you have to have a well-founded fear of persecution, basically saying, if, if I return to the country that I am fleeing from, I will die. I will be killed. Um, the country you're fleeing to has to recognize this. And how, that, how inconvenient would that be for the United States Congress, the United States government that's funding and training and backing 
the very conflict we're fleeing from. You see this plight of refugees from Central America, um, what, 300, 350,000 that came to the United States? Now that number is in the millions. And repeatedly, people are asking for asylum, petitioning for asylum because they're fleeing as a result of the impact of, the, of militarized U.S. foreign policy today. And many cases now, they're being deported. And many people in Central America who's, has their, who's had their asylum case denied are now being murdered in their country when, they, when they're de deported. So that was just Maria's story. And there are thousands and thousands of others just like her and on the caravan. And so all these interventions we just mentioned, you know, the, the several in each of these countries, of course, in that past hundred years, there's actually been 56 U.S. military interventions in Latin America uh, to determine the outcome of their government and who is going to rule. And so it's a long history of subverting the rights, people's right to self-determination, deciding their destiny for them. And so, so much of the violence and chaos there is a direct uh, result of U.S. policy and, and willful actions. And that can't be separated from the current refugee crisis. Uh, and as much as they want to say none of those interventions were ever about democracy, it was always about protecting profits for U.S. capitalism. So that is the history that we have to, to tie in to what's happening with this migrant caravan. And, you know, I think we need to be clear. I mean, whether or not they're coming in illegally, sneaking across the border, or whether they're coming in legally by declaring political asylum through a legal port of entry, it doesn't matter. We should welcome them. They're our brothers and sisters. Uh, and we should stand with them. They deserve our compassion. They deserve our support. And one of the ways we can support them is by fighting the forces of racism in our own government. If you are conflicted now about being in the military, that's because you have a heart and you cannot let a false sense of duty convince you to do something that's morally wrong. So in short, don't be one of Trump's faithful patriots right now. Uh, take the side of humanity and anti-racism. You are not alone and we have your back. Indeed, we have your back. Any type of resistance effort, I'm telling you, if you have even a few people on your side, it's much harder for those in power to suppress you and intimidate you. Join with your brothers and sisters within the ranks, with outside of the ranks, those who are trying to come to this country, find common cause with them, and you'll get back your humanity in a different kind of way, as I've always said. I want to leave us with a quote that's quite prescient from uh, Colonel Arbenz, he himself, a military man. And I figured, given the false claims against the migrant caravan, and given that we're trying to reach those in the military right now, that having someone who comes from a military background articulate uh, such a statement would resonate. So this was from June 19th, 1954. And I quote, Colonel Arbenz, our only crime consisted of decreeing our own laws and applying them to all without exception. Our crime is having enacted an agrarian reform which affected the interests of the United Fruit Company. Our crime is wanting to have our own route to the Atlantic, our own electric power, and our own docks and ports. Our crime is our patriotic wish to advance, to progress, to win economic independence to match our political independence. We are condemned because we have given our peasant population land and rights. So ponder those words, take to heart what Mike and I have discussed here today, and hopefully we'll see you on the other side. You've been listening to Eyes Left with Spencer Rapone. 
and Mike Preisner. All of our content is free for everyone, but we can't do it without your help. So if you support this project, go to patreon.com slash eyes left to make it possible to continue. Be sure to follow us on social media at eyes left pod. And if you're in the military, a military family member or veteran and want to share your story, report problems and mismanagement, or need advice or assistance knowing your rights, including your right to get the hell out or refuse deployment, please write us at eyesleftpod at gmail.com. Eyes left.